verse 12. We're going to cover verses 12 through 25. That will take us through um, the rest and the end of John chapter 2. We looked at the first 11 verses and studied them last week, and now we'll pick it up at verse 12 and finish the chapter. If you need a Bible so you can follow along with us, just raise your hand, and uh, we'll hand you a Bible. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, it's yours to keep as long as you read it. That's the one thing that I ask, okay? So raise your hand if you need a Bible to follow along. And if you're new to Calvary Chapel, we study the Scriptures chapter by chapter and verse by verse. We just a few weeks ago started this study uh, in John's Gospel, and we're really looking forward to seeing Jesus very clearly as the Son of God and uh, as we go through this fourth Gospel in the New Testament. So John chapter 2, again, we'll begin reading at verse 12, and we'll go and cover the rest of the uh, chapter through verse 25 uh, here this morning. All right, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless the time of our study. As uh, Lord, we thank you for this wonderful time of worship and um, just to be able to um, draw close to you. And we know that um, you desire to continue to minister to us through your word right now. So I pray that we would have just understanding and clarity, uh, particularly as we go through a familiar story here that uh, perhaps we've read several times. But Lord, um, may there be application made to a deeper degree, um, to greater uh, implication for us. And Lord, understanding that Jesus, um, what he was saying, the one sign that I'm going to be risen from the grave. If you crucify me, destroy this temple, I will rise again in three days. The implication for us, and that's why we're here, because that Jesus is alive and we celebrate and we believe in a risen Savior. So Lord, bless this time. Help us have our ears open and our hearts soft before you right now as we take in the Word of God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, so far in our study of John's Gospel, Jesus in chapter 1, of course, was out there in the wilderness with John the Baptist as uh, John would baptize Jesus. John was that one, that voice crying in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. And that would begin at that time after Jesus' baptism, his public ministry. And we saw last week in chapter 2 as we opened up the chapter that Jesus and his disciples were invited to a wedding at Cana. Now Cana is a small village up in the Galilee region, only a few miles from where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. And Jesus and his disciples go to that wedding. And of course, it is at that wedding feast that we saw that Jesus performed his first miracle. And that miracle was turning water into wine. And we looked at that quite carefully last week. And as we discussed, that wine is a symbol of joy. And I just want to remind you that the Lord desires for all of our marriages that there be great joy in our marriages. You see, he wants our marriages to be blessed. He wants to work in our marriages. And I hope that all of you understand that. Matter of fact, that God calls marriage a holy institution. And of course, we saw the definition of marriage given to us in the scripture. And that is given to us clear back in the Garden of Eden and Genesis chapter two, that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife 
and the two shall become one flesh. So God elevates the marriage, this holy covenant and institution that he ordained. And what happens is man comes along and tries to redefine marriage and redefine the roles of husbands and wives. And we know that marriage is between one man and one woman. And it is the roles of a husband and man, a uh, husband and a wife, that is, that is given to us in the scripture. And I know that we can come in and we, uh, in our marriage, can have different circumstances and situations situations that are taking place you might be here and, and your spouse is an unbeliever and I would just want to encourage you to continue to just pray for your spouse and be a godly example to them and share with them the things of the Lord as much as you can and we're going to be here to support you and pray with you and for you as well in your marriage but for you that are here married couples and maybe you're thinking well there isn't a lot of joy in our marriage or we could surely use a miracle in our marriage I think that once again that the key is just as this couple invited Jesus to the wedding that you make sure that you invite Jesus into your lives into your marriage because he desires to bless it and not only inviting Jesus to be the one that's going to sustain your marriage bless your marriage be the strength of your marriage but also that we learned that as those servants were told to do what Jesus tells you to do, they were obedient to what Jesus said, fill up those pots full of waters, that it's very, very important, married couples, that you walk in obedience to the Lord. You see, oftentimes people will come to me and they will say, I, I just want to get married because I want to be happy. Listen, if you want to be happy in marriage, first there needs to be holiness in marriage. And there needs to be obedience to the Lord. And so husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You serve her and you cherish her and, and live with her in an understanding way with honor. And wives, you respect your husbands, as the scripture says, as you are given that responsibility and live with your um, husband and you are submissive to him as unto the Lord. And as you are both humble before the Lord and saying, we desire to be obedient to him, you're going to see that he's going to bless your marriage in a tremendous way. Plus, it is interesting that Paul says, husbands, that you make sure that you are washing your wife with the water of the word. And we know that as Pastor John even taught a couple weeks ago, that 2 Corinthians tells us that we are like earthen vessels. And he's a potter, we're the clay. And what you're to do, husbands, and what you're to do, married couples, is make sure that you're filling yourselves up with the water of the word. It just says they would fill those clay pots up full of water, be taken in, and then as you are taken in the water of the word, then they would draw it out, they would give it out, and you give to each other as you're loving each other and serving each other and praying for each other. You pour out what it is that the Lord is showing you and blessing you with. And, and as you're growing in the word of God and growing in your love for him, then you're going to grow in your love for each other. You see, Moses was told in Exodus chapter 32 that Moses lead the people to the place that I've spoken to you. And listen, husbands and those of you who lead your families, you're not going to be able to lead and go to the place that the Lord desires for you to go if he's not speaking to you. And that's why it's very important that you're filling yourselves up with the water of the word, serving each other, pouring it out, and then you're going to see that great joy is going to come 
in your marriage. Again, he desires for you not to where you're just two people are living together, but you're really truly loving each other. And it's going to come as you grow in the love of Jesus Christ and as you grow in his word and as you are living his word, you're going to see that he's going to bless your marriage. You see, I really believe that Satan comes along and he desires to really attack marriages more than anything else. You know why? Because if he can divide you know a marriage a couple he can bring divorce or whatever he knows that it's going to have far-reaching negative effects on not only your family but on the church and as a nation as well so god he wants to bless your marriage he desires to work miracles in your marriage as you come to him and as you just uh, trust in him and rest in his love and know that he wants to do a marvelous work uh, in your uh, marriage uh, as well. And so as we continue now, verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. So Capernaum is over by the Sea of Galilee, still up north in the Galilee region. And Capernaum was a little village that's nestled on the north shores of the Sea of Galilee. And verse 12 here is probably chronologically taking place after the events of Luke chapter 4. You see, what happens is Jesus goes from Cana, he goes a short distance to Nazareth, and he goes into the synagogue in Nazareth where he grew up, and he would begin to read from Isaiah's uh, book, from uh, a prophecy of Isaiah that's written in Isaiah chapter 61. And he would read that prophecy concerning Messiah, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the acceptable day of the Lord. And then he would close the book. He would roll up the scroll. And then Jesus would say that today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And when the people heard that, they gasped. They said, what do you mean? Isn't this Jesus? Don't we know his mom? Don't we know his father, Joseph, and his family, his siblings? He grew up here. What do you mean that you're saying that you're the Messiah? And they were so angry and full of wrath that what they wanted to do at that time is throw him off a cliff, but he would depart from them, and then he would go over to Capernaum where he would spend most of his ministry there in that region of Galilee, on the north shores of the Sea of Galilee. And really, Capernaum ended up being his earthly headquarters, if you would. Now, as I said when we began this gospel, that John's gospel really will focus on Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. He will give us an, some accounts of his ministry in Galilee, but the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they really focus on Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And we see that John, he tells us of the events uh, that the other gospels don't that took place in Jerusalem. And that's what we're going to read about even at this time as we continue with Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. Verse 13, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So Passover, of course, was one of the three major feasts that the Jews would celebrate every year. The other two, of course, being Pentecost, celebrated 50 days after Passover, and then in the fall of the year, the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And with the Feast of Passover taking place, the city would be very, very crowded with Jews coming from all over the known world. And the Passover, of course, would be linked with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So they would celebrate Passover, and then the next day for the next seven days, the next week, 
there was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You read about that in Exodus chapter 12. And as you read that chapter, we know that on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, what they were to do, the Jews, is they would go through their houses to make sure that there was no leaven that was anywhere in the house. And for seven days, there was no leaven to be in the house, and they were to eat of unleavened bread. And of course, uh, a little lump of leaven they would use to put into that dough when they were making bread. And it's would spread throughout the whole loaf of bread as they baked their bread. So for seven days during this Feast of Unleavened Bread, there was to be no leaven in the house and there was to be no uh, bread that was eaten with leaven. And as you go to the New Testament, we know that the New Testament very clearly shows us that leaven is a symbol of sin. It's a symbol of evil. You see, recently in our Galatian study, you might recall that Paul, when he was writing to those Galatian believers, that he said, who hindered you from obeying the truth? That a little leaven leavens the whole lump. When Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, he was addressing the issue of immorality. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he would write, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And he would go on to write, therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul is drawing from a well-known understanding as a call to holiness and a call to purity as part of the believers. The picture for us is that we've left Egypt, haven't we? And Egypt in the Old Testament is a symbol, a picture, uh, points to the world. And we've left Egypt because of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood on Calvary's cross for you and for me. So purge out that leaven that can spread so easily in our lives, keeping us in bondage like they were in Egypt. And that's the thing to never forget, folks, is that sin and worldly pleasures and worldliness will hold you in bondage. Egypt will keep you in bondage. And it will keep you in captivity. It is living for the Lord is where you have true freedom. So keep this in mind as the story now unfolds. Verse 14, And he found in the temple those who sold oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house is eat me up. Now a couple things to note. First of all, in the Gospels, there are actually two cleansings of the temple. This one in John's Gospel is recorded, took place at the beginning of his ministry. And it is believed by scholars that Jesus was baptized, as we saw in chapter 1, by John out there in the wilderness, in the Jordan River, in the fall or early winter of uh, the year. And then the following spring, this Passover, we see that this has taken place. 
in his early ministry, in the first year of his ministry. So there were two cleansings. Now the synoptic gospels record the second cleansing that took place at the end of Jesus' ministry, right? His last week that he would come into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, and there that we see the events of that week that's recorded in the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we know that Jesus at that time, right before he goes to the cross after the triumphal entry he cleanses the the temple at that time and he would cry out to them that my house shall be called a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves here there's no triumphal entry it's early in his ministry and here he cries out that don't make my father's house a house of merchandise so note that there are two cleansings of the temple. John's recording this one early in his ministry. And during the Passover, again, people would come from not only from Israel, but all over the known world to celebrate the feast. And they were to bring their sheep, and they were to bring a sheep or present a dove as a sacrifice that's prescribed in the scripture. Now you know that Exodus chapter 12 says that they were to have a lamb that was to be the Passover lamb, sacrifice, without spot and blemish. So as they would bring that animal, if you brought a sacrifice, then that priest that was there would inspect the animal to make sure that it was without spot and blemish. And at this time um, of uh, Jesus' ministry, what the priest had written volumes about what you know makes a perfect sacrifice and what is the spot and what is the blemish. But the people, they would bring a sacrifice. But something was going on here in the second temple period that is interesting. You see, in the first temple period that we've studied in the Old Testament, when Solomon built the first temple in 970 B.C., that temple stood till 586 B.C. And it's interesting, and as we look at the Old Testament, there, there's no record that they really celebrated the Passover every year. We know that they didn't because some of the kings of Judah were very pagan kings and very evil kings, such as Manasseh and such as Ahaz. They didn't celebrate the Passover every year. And it's also interesting that we have recorded in Second Chronicles, you might recall in our study, that Hezekiah, he celebrated the Passover as he brought reforms and revival to Judah. And also Josiah, right before uh, they would go off into the Babylonian captivity, he would bring revival to the land, and he celebrated Passover. And when Josiah did, it tells us that there had not been a Passover celebrated like that since the days of the judges, which I find to be very interesting. Now, the text doesn't say that they never celebrated Passover, but it wasn't celebrated in the way that Josiah had this huge celebration of the Passover. So in the first temple period, a lot of times they didn't celebrate Passover, and most of the Jews lived in Israel. So it was easier for people to bring a sacrifice, a, a lamb a, a, and a dove, to present it to the priest to be sacrificed for Passover. Now, in the second temple period that started in about 516 B.C. when Zerubbabel, as we, you recall, you've been coming out on Wednesday night, after the Babylonian captivity, him and Joshua came back. They rebuilt the temple from that time, about 500 years before this event here in chapter 2, the Jews were dispersed throughout, you know, the empire. They came back, many of them 
uh, would, uh, only a few came back, was Zerubbabel and Joshua. A lot of them stayed back in Babylon and in Persia and up north where the Medes were and the, where the Fertile Crescent was. And so they were spread out. And then for the next 500 years, that the Jews would be dispersed all throughout the known world. Now at this time here, as we look at what exactly is going on, that the Romans are occupying the known world. And when the Romans occupied Israel in Jerusalem in the second temple period, uh, what they did is they came in and said, listen, we don't want your leader. And in the second temple period after the captivity, they didn't have a king. So the high priest was the leader of the land. They said, we don't want a high priest to have too much power. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to tell you who the high priest is. We're going to help you pick the high priest. We don't care about the spiritual qualifications of the high priest. We want a high priest that's going to appease us and work for us and, and is going to be subject to us. And while we're at it, Rome said, we're going to give it to the highest bidder. So here comes Annas. We're going to read his name at the end of the book of John where Jesus goes on trial and he stands before Annas the high priest. Now Annas at this time is not the official high priest, but what happened was is that initially somebody came up with a good idea in the second temple period. You see, it would be hard for Jews to travel from North Africa, from you know, different parts of the empire with an animal. It was very expensive, it was very hard, and to bring a poor sheep, you know, from a long distance, by the time that sheep got to Jerusalem, it, it, it would not pass inspection. So initially a good idea that the priest came up with, why don't we have some sheep that we raise, some pre-approved, inspected sheep, if you would, so when the pilgrim, when the worshiper comes to Jerusalem, they can just purchase a sheep or a dove to be sacrificed, and that'll be a lot easier. Great idea, but what happened over time is here comes Annas, and he begins to take over that operation, and he begins to rip the people off, merchandise the people. He's selling these animals at a very high price, and he would then be able to buy the high priestly office from the Romans, and then when the Romans came along and said, hey, you need to step down, Annas, what he did is he was able to buy the high priestly office for his sons and sons-in-law. So at the end of the book of John, Jesus stands before Annas, who's the power behind the priestly office or the high priestly office, and then Jesus would go before Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who was the official high priest at that time, who presided over the Sanhedrin council. We'll talk about that when we get to John chapter 19. But right now what's going on is Annas and the priests, his family, his sons, were making millions, as if it would, uh, in, in money. And, and they had this racket going on and they're, they're cheating the people. So you come into Jerusalem, you got to buy the sheep and uh, buy a dove, and they were selling it at a very high price. And then also, the Jews at this time, when they came to the feast, they had to pay a temple tax, and they would carry Roman coinage. Remember that it was Jesus, when he was at the temple, right before you know, his crucifixion, that he asked for a coin, and he said, whose image is on it? Well, it's Caesar's. Render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, and the things that belong to God to God. So they would carry Roman coinage as they came from all over the Roman Empire. And the priest said, we can't accept this. This isn't holy. Um, this is pagan Roman coinage. It'll defile us in the temple. So 
people, in order to pay their temple tribute, they had to exchange the Roman coins for temple coins. And again, it was at a very high exchange rate. So the priests were making a lot of money as they were merchandising the selling of these sacrifices, the exchange of money. And here it is, Passover, celebrating how God had brought them out of Egypt and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, no leaven, no sin, purge it out. And here comes the Lamb of God into the holy city of Jerusalem, to the temple. And all the people are pouring into the city. And we're really talking about Pacquiao. Now, we don't know exactly how many people would be here, but Josephus, the Jewish historian, it's interesting, that he writes an account about this time that the Romans wanted to take a census of how many Jews were coming into Jerusalem um, during the, the, the feast and during Passover. And the reason was is because they wanted to make sure they had enough security, soldiers that were in the city. The priests said, please don't count us, don't take a census, because the last time that happened, when David did it, it was bad news. There was a plague that went throughout the land. You read about that at the end of 2 Samuel. So what happened was is that they made a compromise, and the Romans counted the number of sheep that were sacrificed so they could get an estimate of how many people were coming into the holy city. So Josephus writes at one Passover that they sacrificed over 200,000 sheep. So they're estimating about a million and a half and two million people are pouring into Jerusalem, into the whole holy city for the, the Passover. So all this activity, all these money changers tables are set up, the selling of the sheep and oxen and doves, and Jesus sees it and he knows that the people are being ripped off and it was a gross abuse of the people it was a terrible witness to the people of God and also to the Greeks that were coming to Jerusalem you say what do you mean the Greeks coming in chapter 12 we're going to see that the Greeks wish to see Jesus and at this time as well there would be the Greeks that would come to Jerusalem because they really believe that the magnificent temple that the Jews have at this time greater the temple greater the God and we want to know about this God. And that's why the Greeks would come in as well. And Solomon even talked about that when he dedicated the first temple, which was a magnificent building. And Solomon talked about in Second Chronicles chapter 6 at that dedication, that moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come, and when they pray at this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigners call to you, that all the people of the earth may know your name and fear you. The temple was to be a, a witness and a testimony of how the, you know, the glory of God, the magnificence of God, and how true God was. And you see, here they are ripping the people off. In the second cleansing, Jesus would cry out, it is written, my house is a house of prayer. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, which reads, my house should be a house of prayer for all the nations. So he's upset at what's going on here. And I just wonder what Jesus thinks when he sees those today who are getting wealthy off the people, that are fleecing the flock of God rather than feeding the people of God. 
and tending them and caring for them. Here's an email. This is just one of many that I get all the time, and I've gotten this email every day for the last two weeks, but there's a huge conference going on next month in, in Florida, and it's a faith and fundraising summit. There'll be thousands upon thousands of ministry leaders and pastors that will go to this conference. And I don't know if you realize this, maybe you do, but there are some ministries that that is the main focus, is how much money they can bring in, how much money can we raise. That really is the focus of their ministry. And here these gurus of, of fundraising are going to be there to help you be able to raise as much money as possible. And you will learn, if you go to this summit, at this fundraising summit, you'll learn, first of all, access to public net worth information of everyone within their service area or congregation. Second of all, learn how to secure the contact info of every millionaire in their community and congregation. You'll begin securing five, six, and even seven-figure gifts from high net worth donors and then receive a workbook full of major gift strategies at work. And there's about 10 other things that are listed there. I'm not going to read it, but I read that and I think, really? And there'll be thousands upon thousands of ministry leaders and pastors going to that, learning the focus on how much money can we bring in. Rather than trusting the Lord, and allowing him to provide and being content with and thankful for what God has given to us. So here in, in Jesus, he makes a whip of cords. He goes into the temple proper. He overturns the money changers' tables. And can you imagine the scrambling that's going around as the coins are rolling down the pavement of the courtyard of the temple with that scourge? Then he's driving out the sheep, the oxen. But I want us to notice something here in verse 16. He said that those who are selling doves take those things away and the reason that i'm taking special note of that is because jesus isn't just flying off the handle he is not out of control and of course the the cages that the animals you know would be in as they would be vulnerable to injury if they were overturned and knocked to the ground and jesus has removed them you see, Jesus shows us a perfect example of what it means, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Jesus was without sin. This is a righteous anger that Jesus shows us, a righteous anger that is um, not out of control, but, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, as we learned not long ago, is self-control. A righteous anger is not holding grudges and being full of wrath and malice where you're flying off the handle. He is very much in control, real strength and firmness. You who are selling those doves, remove them. And then he continues to crack the whip and drive out the sheep and the oxen. That you've made my father's house a, a house of merchandise. And this story here, isn't it quite a contrast to the previous story in the chapter? The wedding feast where the emphasis was joy. And now as we read this, the emphasis is judgment. And even as the chapter will link these two things, joy and judgment, together, the Lord in our lives will link those two things together, joy and judgment. You say, how do you mean? You know, how does that work, Pastor Jeff? You see, the scripture tells us that we're the temple of God. You're the temple of God. This church is the temple of God. 
And there can be things in our lives that are ripping us off, just like the priests were of the day were ripping off the people. And if I'm going to have true joy in my life, if we're going to have true joy in this church, then the Lord says there needs to be judgment in that. He wants to drive out those things that are ripping you off, me off, that can rip this church off. Those things that are compromise and carnality and sin. He wants to drive them out of our lives. And you see, that's why as a pastor, I have a responsibility not to condemn, but to warn and to be honest in giving you the truth of what God's word says and to say that this is our final authority and to warn people the consequences of sin because that's what the Bible does and allow the Lord to drive sin out of our lives, out of our, our church, out of the, the, our hearts. You see, listen, godly sorrow and conviction of sin is not a bad thing. And there are too many pastors and ministry leaders that give the idea that it is. And it's not a bad thing because it will lead to joy as we submit totally and truly to the Lord. There needs to be things overturned in my life that are causing me not to experience that joy and peace that the Lord has, that abundant life that He has for me. So Jesus here uses a small whip, scourge, to drive out those animals. And may we remember that later on, that Jesus, that he would take on that scourge on his back, that cat of nine tails, as it would wrap around his body, as he went through the sufferings for you and for me. And why did he do that? Because of his love for us, to die for our sins, so we can be free from the penalty of sin. And listen, Jesus didn't die for us and save us, so that then we can be in bondage to sin and worldliness and compromise, so that we can live for him. And we can be free. And we know that the author of Hebrews reminds us that the Lord says to us, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Every one of us are, are his children. He lovingly chastens and scourges. Why? He doesn't do it to be a killjoy. And he doesn't do it so we can have boring, dry, you know, meaningless lives. He doesn't do it so he can hassle us. No, he wants to produce, again, real purpose and joy and peace and fulfillment and satisfaction in your life and for you to experience that abundant life that he promised. So every son and daughter he chastens, just as we as parents, we do that with our children, don't we? We don't just say to our kids, oh, just go and do whatever it is that you want. It doesn't matter. As long as you're happy, live any way that you want. No, it's a loving father that warns us about sin. And then in verse 17, his disciples remember what was written in Psalm 69, verse 9. It's interesting that this psalm is quoted several times in the New Testament. Jesus has zeal. And know this, at this time he had zeal for God's house, but he also has zeal for this church, and he has zeal for you. He's very serious about this church. He's very serious about you personally as a believer. And verse 18, so the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? You're coming into this holy place. You're turning over the tables. Who gave you this authority? And what sign do you show us that you have authority to do this? We're going to see this in John's gospel, that they're going to say that to him several times. What authority do you do this? 
And Jesus will tell them what authority he does it by. But right now in verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. Jesus had just gone into the temple proper. He drove out all those who were involved in the merchandising of the people. The temple was everything to the Jews, especially to the religious leaders of Israel. It was the center of Jewish life. The temple, not just the courtyard, and, and, but all of it, the temple proper, was a magnificent structure. And so here, to say that destroyed his temple... It would be ultimate blasphemy. And then to say, I'll raise it up again in three days. What do you mean? Well, let's continue reading verse 20. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. What do you mean? It's taken 46 years to build this magnificent structure. Now, you might be thinking, well, I thought we learned on Wednesday night that the second temple was built by Zerubbabel again 500 years before this story. And that's true. Zerubbabel came back. They built a very modest temple. But what happened was, is right before the birth of Jesus, Herod the Great, you know about him, he was ruling over Judea at the time of the birth of Jesus. He was a great builder. That's why they called him the Great. He was a terrible man, though. Very cruel man. But he was a great builder. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to level the second temple and rebuild it. The religious leaders said, please don't do this. But what they did is they modified it. And he would enlarge the temple mount, that flat area, the temple proper, and he began to remodel it. And he used huge stones. So you can see some of those stones even today, the Heronian stones. And, and they were cut to precision. There was you know, the stones that fit perfectly, and there's a little hairline fracture in between the stones that are there. There was no mortar that was used. Absolutely incredible. Some of the stones of the, the foundation wall and of the temple that you can go and where they've excavated, and some of those stones were as large as this back wall here. They still don't know how they got those stones there. And you might recall in the Olivet Discourse that the disciples said to Jesus, you know, look at this temple and look at these magnificent stones. And Jesus said that the time's going to come where not one stone's going to be left upon another. So what happened was Herod the Great began to remodify the second temple. He had 18,000 workers, as Josephus writes, and they would do that work. It had been going on for 46 years, and that work would continue till 63 AD, about 30 years after this time here, when they would dismiss the workers and they completed it. 63 AD. What is interesting, seven years later, then Titus and the Roman legions came in and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed that temple, to where not one stone was left upon another. So they're going, what are you talking about? You, it's taken us 46 years to get to this point. We're not even done. What do you mean destroy this temple and you'll raise it up again in three days? And I imagine that Jesus, as he says, destroy this temple that he's pointing to himself. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And of course, speaking of his resurrection. What authority, what sign 
do you give that you can do these things? You remember they would ask them that up in the Galilee region. Show us a sign. Jesus had been working all kinds of miracles, healing every kind of sickness and disease, freeing the demoniacs, and they come along and said, show us a sign. They wanted to see fire come down from heaven. They wanted to see him part the Sea of Galilee, something spectacular. Jesus said, no sign's going to be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a large fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then I'm going to come forth. You want a sign? You want to know what authority? Destroy this body. And in three days, I'm going to raise it up again. I'm going to resurrect. Now, the disciples at this time, they're absolutely clueless at what he's talking about. Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of men for he knew what was in man. So people are seeing the signs, the miracles that Jesus begins to do. And we know that, again, he would go up, as the synoptic gospels say, up in the Galilee region. He's doing every kind of healing and and, um, you know, working miracles. And the people begin to follow him. They're following the signs is what they're doing. And it's interesting, what we're going to see here in John's gospel now, Jesus is saying, destroy this temple, raise it up in three days. They're thinking, this temple here? They're thinking of the physical material. Jesus is saying, yeah, my physical body is going to be raised up. You're going to destroy it. You're going to kill me bodily as I'm crucified on the cross and I'm going to be raised again after three days. They didn't understand the spiritual implications of that and neither did the disciples. You see, about six months before Jesus would go to the cross up at Caesarea Philippi, Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. That's great, Peter, but I'm going to go to the cross now. I'm going to be handed over to the religious leaders and they're going to put me to death and then I'm going to rise after three days. And Peter says, not so, Lord. I mean, look what's happening. They're ready to crown you as king, as Messiah. And we're going to see that even as we continue through John's gospel. And Jesus is one in relationship with them. For them to understand that he's coming to free them not from the occupation of Rome, but to free them from sin. And they don't fully understand it till after his death, burial, and resurrection. Even up until the time, the night of his, you know, arrest, they're clueless of what's going on. Even though he spoke about his crucifixion, he always spoke about his resurrection as well. So after his resurrection, they said, oh yeah, they, they understood. He kept talking about he's going to rise from the grave. But what we're going to see is the crowds are going to be large. And Jesus is going to talk to a man next week about being born again. And this master teacher of Israel is going to really struggle because he's thinking about the material, the physical. He's saying, what do you mean, be born again? Can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? Jesus says, listen, Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. The woman at the well in John chapter 4 she says, you don't have a bucket and the well's deep. How are you going to draw water? Jesus says, listen, you drink of this well, you'll thirst again. You drink of the living waters I have to give to you and never thirst again. John chapter 6. The people are only following him after the feeding of the 5,000. He said, you're only coming because you're hungry physically. You need to come. 
to the living bread, the bread from heaven. And I am the bread of life. And whoever believes in me shall never hunger or thirst again. So that's what we're going to see, that the people wanted a, a material, physical Messiah, one who's going to bring in prosperity, overthrow Rome, heal them of all complete sickness and disease and all that. Now, the Lord heals. Don't get me wrong. The Lord provides. He is good. But they're having a hard time understanding what it is that Messiah is going to do. As Jesus says, come to me and drink of me. So, Father, we thank you so much for these lessons here. And, Lord, as he begins to give truth that he's going to die and rise from the grave. And we know as we look at it 2,000 years later that the tomb is indeed empty. He rose from the grave. And, Father, I'm so thankful that Jesus is going to claim and be the one that makes the claim that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And he proved it by going to the cross, dying for our sins, and then conquering sin and death as he rose from the grave. No one else has ever done that. Dying for our sins. Because the penalty of sin is eternal death, and we've all sinned. And Jesus came and lived that perfect life for us. The Son of God. And he went to the cross because there was no other hope. And he died for you specifically. And so here this morning, if you're here listening to this message, or if you're listening on the radio, and you never ask for your sins to be forgiven and surrender your heart to Jesus Christ, he is the way, not a way. He is the way. Jesus is your salvation and the author of eternal life, the creator of all, and the one who loves you so much that he came. He died on the cross, and then he would cry out that it is finished. I, I've paid the price for sinful humanity, for your sins personally. I've done the work, and now you come in faith, recognizing that you are a sinner and you need to turn to Jesus. That's what the word repent means. It's a very liberating, wonderful word that you repent, turn direction, and turn to Jesus now and surrender your life to him. And you call upon him and believe that he died for your sins and that he rose from the grave and he's alive. He's knocking on the door of your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Without a surrendered life to Jesus Christ and asking for forgiveness of sin, there is no hope of eternal life with God. It will be separation from God. And that's the truth of what God's word declares. He came to free you from the penalty of sin. He's come to give you eternal life as you believe in him. If that means anything to you, will you cry out to him right now? And will you pray, Jesus, come be my personal Lord and Savior. I confess that I am a sinner. And I believe in my heart that you died for my sins, every single one, forgive me. And that you were put into a grave and you rose again from the grave and you're alive knocking on the door of my heart and I now open it up. And Lord, my life is not its own. I surrender to you as my personal Lord and Savior, believing in you. Oh Lord, thank you for hearing my prayer.
and help me to live for you all the days of my life. And if you prayed that prayer, that when we're finished, I want you to come up and pray with Pastor John. Tell me the decision that you made, and we want to encourage you and bless you and give you some things that will help you. But Lord, for all of us, not only did Jesus free us from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin in our lives. So Lord, may the scourging spiritually that you want to do take place in our lives so we can experience your joy. And anything that is unpleasing to you in our behavior, our speech, our conduct, our faith, our love, our purity, Lord, may we allow you to drive it out because you love us and you want us to be free and experience that abundant life. And we thank you that we are your children. You desire to do that work in us. I pray you bless everyone here today as we go our way. I pray that you bless every marriage that is here. Show yourself strong on behalf of every, every married couple that is here. And Lord, I pray that you'd bless our families. Lord, may we enjoy our day and our week. Fill us with your love. Help us to be a light to others. And Lord, may we just look to you and live in your love this week. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Would you please stand?